Go. Hi, it's Steve Hargadon and Audrey Waters, and it is November 5th, 2011, and we're doing the Hack Education Weekly Roundup Podcast. Hi, Audrey. Hello. I, I found myself with some really strong responses to this week again, so I'm delighted to be talking to you. Yes, once again, it, I keep waiting for sort of the, the news to sort of die off, and every week um, this, this, the stakes seem to be getting uh, higher and higher, so... Well, I think that's uh, all the more reason for us to be meeting on a weekly basis. I think so, too. Okay, so uh, a lot of interesting stories this week. Um, I didn't want to spend too much time on it, but the Open Course Library uh, has opened. And, and, I'm, and I'm thinking that that was uh, largely Cable Green's initiative. Yes. Am I right about that? Yes, yes. And this is so. This is um, Washington State set aside some money um, at the beginning of the year to sort of think through how to, you know, how to help college students address what, what, you know, besides the cost of tuition, what they'll tell you is their biggest burden, and that's the cost of textbooks. So it's an initiative to try to um, make it so that some of the most popular classes in the state um, that the textbooks are available for no more than thirty dollars a course. So it's a com combination of sort of openly licensed uh, resources that uh, instructors will be able to sort of pull together their own digital uh, course packets. Cable and I have had a really interesting email conversation because he's coming on the Future of Ed Education interview series. And I saw him speak at the Open Education Conference. And basically his point is if, if public funds are paying for something, it should be open. And uh, initiative is intended to kind of spur other people to create course material in other areas to all complement and come together. The real question in my mind is, how altruistic are people really interested in being? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a good question. And I think that, you know, the, you know, I was looking through the looking through the materials myself, too. And I think that, um, that I think a lot of different pieces have to come into place. I mean, partially, too, you know, our are instructors going to want to sort of use a pre, um, you know, use this courseware? Are they more interested in finding, you know, finding their own materials? I think that there's, there are a lot of challenges still, but it seems like a good first step. Yeah, I did like the quote in, the, in your blog post. Instructors in this group were annoyed with the assumption that it's just a matter of plucking ripe fruit off the internet tree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's part of it too, is that that there is a ton of there's a ton of content out there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, suitable for you know suitable for a course. It's going to evolve, and especially for me personally, I'm I'm going to be very interested to see if we can catch the right motivations, because more and more I'm uh, I, I keep struggling with this thought that as much as the open source movement. You know, ended up having to go go from free software to open source, and still sort of arguably depends on um, some kind of strategic or uh, individual interest to move forward. That we're going to have to say the same thing in the open educational resources. Well, so let's move to Pearson and Newton. Yes. <laughs> Big data and personalized learning. I loved your. Uh, uh, I think you put uh, in the post. If I can pull it up here. Uh, you you have a quote where you've put emphasis mine in parentheses afterwards <laughs> because you you italicize personalized learning as a part of this uh, combined data power of millions. 
So uh, I found myself really responding strongly to this. What was yeah. your reaction? This, I think, is a really, really important story um, for a number for a number of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, you know, this is clearly this is clearly where Pearson is uh, headed in terms of it, thinking through its strategy of how to move its traditional print textbook business into the digital into digital content but also connecting that with what is i think a, a very powerful trend right now which is you know analytics based on data um, based on student data and particularly once you have students studying um, via computers how can you use that data to sort of um, to help deliver, again, emphasis mine here, personalized learning to them. Um, so I think it, that's through Newton. They've connected, they've made a partnership deal with Newton, who they recently invested in. Um, and Newton's, Newton says it has adaptive learning, uh, adaptive learning platform that'll make sure that the right students get sort of the right question or the right content based on their skills and their needs. So I have some really significant responses to this. I'm going to give them to you and I want you to tell me if you feel like I'm in the right area or not. Uh, the first is this still feels very much like content delivery and not active learning. That it's still this model of how do we bring the right content at the right moment to the student as if the student were a plant we were just, you know, feeding water to and maybe that's even, a, I've even used the wrong imagery there because that would actually be sort of healthy. But it, it just feels to me as though content delivery is so different than active learning. Well, I think so too. I mean, and I think that, you know, I think that this is, um, this is an interesting development in a lot of ways because in some ways, I mean, we have to remember that Pearson really does have um, a, an immense, an immense catalog of courses that, um, higher education purchases. And so students are already, um, we could definitely say that students are already exposed to this content. And I think to, to what you're saying is that sort of philosophy that, you know, what you do with a textbook is uh, deliver content, deliver the right educational content uh, for the right course. And so what Pearson is saying now is that because they can tap into this algorithm, that they can better deliver that content based on students' needs. But yeah, you're right. It still is very much within this box of the content you need to know um, is dictated by the textbook, the software, the platform. So the moment you say algorithm, I'm thinking Occupy Pearson. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So uh, one of the, some of the most interesting studies for me about decision-making relate to how too much data can actually trap us into thinking or trick us into thinking that we know things that we don't know. And um, th there have been some sort of famous studies about investing in the market where, you, where if you only got data once a month, you did a better job as an investor than if you got data on a daily basis. And I'm thinking of the financial crisis and I'm thinking of this mistaken belief that we have that more data equals better decision making mm -hmm. and that there's this sort of larger human nature picture that we need to be thinking about, which is um, having more data doesn't necessarily mean we're going to know what to do with that data or make better decisions, but it tricks us into believing somehow, oh, more data will do better. And, and I'm worried that, in fact, we may actually do worse 
Is that possible? Well, I think that that's, you know, I, I, I'm hearing a lot of, you know, a lot of schools are talking about, you know, the move to being data driven. And I think that there are probably some really interesting ways that we can think about that. There is a lot of, there is a lot of data, uh, school data that we probably aren't tracking on, um, that we are really aren't um, using to think through sort of how to, how to build the best school, how to offer the best oppor learning opportunities for students. What the data that we look at tends to be test scores, uh, test scores, graduation rates, attendance, real uh, things that we sort of can easily quantify. And I think that uh, the push towards data-driven education is probably really just going to give more weight to the kinds of things that we can, quote, standardize and measure easily um, instead of really, you know, thinking through the potential of what it means to, um, to, have, uh, to have analytics that perhaps are, are looking at things that we aren't, we aren't quantifying right now. I think that's a really good point. And I'm thinking about also in the financial industry this idea that uh, when we move from local banks making local decisions to sort of uh, using data in large-scale ways to create complex financial instruments, that, that we ended up going down a path that created, you know, sort of major disaster. Uh, my father has a quote that he has said enough times that I actually remember it, um, that we um, – Let's see, we, we can't precisely measure the things we value highly, so we tend to place too high a value on the things we can precisely measure. I think, and I think that that is precisely why this deal between Pearson and Newton is such an important, uh, such an important uh, deal, because this is absolutely us um, tr looking to measure the things that we're pretty sure uh, we're pretty sure we know how to measure, which is how well a student responds to a series of multiple choice questions placed in front of them on a computer screen. Um, we, I, don't, I don't think that's much to do with personalized learning, um, but, but that's certainly, I think that's certainly how this is being spun. And I think that we'll see, we're going to see a lot more of this. Fascinating. Well, I really appreciate your opening that door. Um, okay, code now. This was very interesting to me because uh, there was a reference to um, Scratch mm -hmm. in the story, but I keep thinking Seymour Papert, Logo. Um, you, you probably don't know Jeff Elkner, but he teaches Python to kids in high school. I mean, uh, there is a really rich vein of educators who have worked in thinking about how to really teach programming. And is code now really a great new thing, or are they missing um, sort of existing uh, practices that could be brought into what they're doing. I think. I mean. I think it's probably a, a bit of both. I think that um, I, what what fascinated me about um, talking to uh, talking to Ryan, the founder of this, um, the founder of this uh, uh, new project, is that he's sort of laying out his his personal experience. Um, he's his background is in filmmaking, and he is one of the sort of group of young folks who joined the Obama campaign and ended up in Washington, D.C. and is feeling a little disillusioned and still wants to change the world. And so it's this really interesting, um, I think it's part of a new set of um, 
entrepreneurs and in some ways educators who aren't, who perhaps don't have that long history of knowing about the field, um, but have this newer feeling that they must go out and, and make a difference. So I think that, 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 you know, to help bridge that history is something that we, I think we really need to work on. Hard to be critical of those motives. Um, also, I, I, my sense was I wanted to email Gary Steger and say, hey, quickly, contact <laughs> these guys. Yeah. Okay, so this uh, the your post on education platforms, build one or build one. Yeah. Um, for a long time, it seemed to me that there was sort of this magic that was about to happen when learning management systems were going to meet social networking and they were going to then meet with synchronous meetings and create this sort of great platform. Um, but the the I'm not really in the higher ed arena, but the content models that that you that you're focusing on and that seem to be coming out to the fore don't really seem to recognize the passion and energy around social learning. Right. And I think that, you know, I think that these older, that these, um, a lot of these older models, I would even take it one step back and they actually are sort of, um, they're they're not, um, they're not web 2.0 at all. I mean, they're very much, I mean, they're online, but they, but they, each of them sort of acts as though anything that happens in a classroom is really isolated from, certainly isolated from other classrooms and from the rest of the, from the web. And so I think that, you know, I think that as we see, see a shift in the learning management system to have to, you know, have to respond to collaboration, to have to respond to social, social networking, social learning, um, you know, it, it, are we, do we need, do we need a specific platform for education or are educators perhaps better served to turn to sort of other online platforms and build, build from there? Yeah, and I actually misspoke because the title was Build On or Build One. Mm-hmm. So the idea of building on existing platforms. I think what was interesting about the idea of building on an existing platform is the fear that you're then wed to that particular commercial provider. So yeah. you're building on top of Google. You know, you don't really have control of Google. But I also feel as though um, Ning, which is was a commercial service, kind of showed us the potential and the possibilities. So there are times when building on a commercial provider may not be your long-term solution, but it allows you to leverage the existing technologies in a way that kind of opens the the field of view to a whole new concept of what's possible. That's a, that's actually really interesting because you know um, the one of the you know thinking about uh, Ning's you know uh, Ning as a platform. Was in fact some of the some of um, Mark Andreessen's initial thoughts on platforms were what sort of what made me think about this whole um, this whole post too. Yeah, yeah it is a it's a. Um, I mean, I know Drupal well enough to know that I could never have done in Drupal what I did in Ning. Mm-hmm. But now that it's been done in Ning, we have much more incentive to do it in projects and programs like Drupal. And if Ning were to go away. That you know we that we would find a way to recreate it because it was shown to be so valuable, and I feel that way about sort of anything added on top of Google. It makes me increasingly nervous, but at the same time, gosh, what brilliant capabilities begin to exist. Well, I mean, I think that you know I had this I had a very interesting conversation with this New Zealand startup that I write about in that um, in that story, and and you know that's you know 
um, you know, Pearson, again, Pearson, Pearson has decided, you know, to create its, what it's calling its free and open um, LMS, open class. Um, and it, it's, it's really integrated with, it's really built on top of or sort of next to Google Apps. And that's sort of what Hapara, this New Zealand company, is doing as well. But just thinking about, you know, what it means for a little startup um, you know, I think they have less than six employees to be able to to be able to sort of take on Pearson because they can actually uh, put an app in the Google Marketplace is really interesting. So it's sort of all of the power behind Pearson, and because you're building, you're both building something on Google's platform. Um, you know, this this other startup is a viable, is a you know absolutely a viable alternative to using to using Pearson. Well, and I feel I feel. Like I've been in that boat a little bit with the Global Education Conference and the Library 2.0 conferences. I mean, uh, I took a set of existing tools, Google Calendar, and a small startup, you, you can book.me for scheduling conferences. And I ran a 6,800-person conference as one person. And that feels like that's very disruptive. Yeah. Right? I mean, what would it take normally to run a conference with 150 sessions or 450 sessions? You know, the, the idea that one person can now do that seems highly disruptive. And it also seems to me that in part what it's saying is that the platform may not, in fact, have the power that it used to. You know, in a Web 2.0 world, owning the platform doesn't necessarily mean you own the marketplace. Right. Although, I mean, I think the flip side of that is, you know, we're seeing uh, we're seeing some of these really powerful platforms um uh, sort of uh, develop, and so so what are the implications then for education and for all of us when so much of the web is built on, uh, I would say th- on th- on three platforms, right? Google, uh, Google, uh, Facebook, and and Amazon, and I, I think that you know Amazon's infrastructure um, behind the scenes. So, right. So yeah, very good point as well. Um, okay, so. Um, Moving on to plagiarism, short story. Yes. Um, basically, the idea being that there's comparable plagiarism both uh, from the Turnitin group, uh, which is a commercial provider, right? Yeah, Turnitin. Turnitin is sort of is is um, I have I have sort of issues with well I have a lot of issues with Turnitin. I think that it's um, in some ways they they issue these sorts of reports that say oh plagiarism is on the rise, and they they you know, they sort of throw out a bunch of interesting um, figures here, and it's not clear what, it's not exactly clear what constitutes plagiarism in this case. But what fascinates me, um, because they say they're, they're talking about content matches, so they say that of the papers that have been submitted to Turnitin, um, 30% of the content matches from high school students come from sort of social sites. And a content match isn't necessarily plagiarism. Um, but I think it's interesting to see how students in high school and college are actually differing where they're using, you know, where their sources are coming from. Well, so it was slightly higher for high school students using the social media than it was for the college students, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, so that uh, that indicated to me either, okay, well, we have different generation, even a couple of years of different use of the, the web, but also college students tend to be a little savvier, right? Mm-hmm. I mean you know they're they're probably less likely to use a social media site than they are to actually search a little bit deeper for their plagiarizing right well the, or and but the the one i thought was interesting is that college students are more likely to use paper mills or the actual cheating websites 
And so, ah. you know, just thinking, you know, I mean, I think that thinking through it's partially it's sort of why people cheat, something that we've talked about before and how people cheat. Um, but also thinking through sort of what are the, you know, what are the pressures that would mean that a college student is more likely, a college student is actually more likely to go to a specific cheating site rather than have what you'll often hear from students is, oh, I didn't actually mean to plagiarize that. I just didn't, you know, like genuinely, they, they just didn't get the, you know, the citation correctly. This, this is so funny. It's another case of my just having been so buried this week in the library conference. I said it was a short post, but I'm looking at it. Well, there's the rest of the story on MindShift. <laughs> now, now I'm mad at myself for not reading it. Okay, so I will have to go back and read that and <laughs> and save comments for a later time. It, it did remind me of the degree to which my own children have sort of struggled with this. My teacher won't let us use Wikipedia. Right. And I well, I'm okay with the idea, yeah. you know, don't use it as a source, but it's such a brilliant place to start getting information. Right. I mean, and actually thinking through thinking through how Wikipedia is assembled and its own use of um, requirements for citations and, and editing, I think is actually a great lesson in in citation. Yeah, although I think in your uh, weekly roundup, you um, did I read it in your roundup yes. that they're 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 look they're looking at possibly maybe one in twenty. Yeah. He's one, not actually having sufficient citation? Actually, one in 20 have no citations at all. Oh. Which uh, I would say that uh, Carl Fitch, um, uh, math teacher that he is, did call me out on Twitter this morning saying that that is, you know, 95% then do actually have citations. So, you know, uh, duly noted. But, but I do think that there are, that there are problems with how um, some of the pages in Wikipedia aren't, aren't cited at all. Yeah, I mean, every once I mean, I'm a very active Wikipedia user, and and probably several times a day going to Wikipedia, and every once in a while, you know, I will read a page and I'll think, you know, nobody's even looked at this, mm -hmm. and uh, to give it the sort of the crowdsourced pushback that it needs. Yeah, but I think that you know, I think that again, thinking about banning sort of this blanket banning or at least dismissal of Wikipedia in schools, I think is really actually detrimental to the larger Wikipedia project, which is a great one mm -hmm. and a very important one. And I think if we could think about how to use Wikipedia intelligently, I mean, you know, th there are some universities that are actually offering their students, the assignment for their students is to contribute to Wikipedia as part of their project. So it's not just sort of write a paper that the teacher sees. It's actually contribute knowledge back to, you know, back to a crowdsourced encyclopedia. The difficulty with that is that you can't put original material on Wikipedia. So it has to be referenced. So it's a little bit of a more sophisticated operation mm -hmm. than most students are prepared for. Uh, I'm going to shout it out just because I've wanted to do this for years and I'm hoping somebody will listen and hear this and want to support it. But I feel like there needs to be a a way for students to have teachers vet their material and then place it on a website that's Wikipedia-like mm -hmm. that could be original material, like um, a, sort of a Wikistoria, you know, uh, uh, ans stories about your ancestors or their participation in a world war or those kinds of things. So there could be some sense of how you gradually get toward that higher Wikipedia standard, but with some active participation where students are creating content that others in the world can actually access. Well, I mean, it isn't that, I mean, that just goes back to our previous conversation about the sort of the old models of the LMS and the ways in which, um, you know, not being able to share your students' 
students share students' work or students share their own work with the West, rest of the web is, is I think, is, is something that folks are realizing is actually a, that's not a benefit, that's a, that's a problem. Right. Okay, Khan Academy, yes. going to kind of bring us full circle here. Can you argue with success? Uh, I'm <laughs> <I can. laughs> kind of tired of doing so, but I and I don't know if it's sour grapes. But again, I looked at this and thought, is this actually a good thing? So, uh, uh, what's Saul Khan teaching us that is of value? What are we learning here that really does have value from this story? Is it that people want more engaged, shorter kind of explanations of things? Is it what is what what's what's the good here? I mean, I think that I think that. There's actually a lot of danger here, and I, um, it's always interesting when I write stories about Khan Academy that I, I see more than any other um, organization or company that I write about. When I write about Khan Academy, there is a very knee-jerk, blanket reaction response to people, which is Khan Academy is the savior of education. He's the most amazing thing that's ever happened uh, to, to education, and we should all be very, very thankful that um, that he's receiving more money to do what he's doing, um, and I think that we should we should probably uh, problematize that a little bit because um, I not that I mean I, I think that it is commendable that he's created you know almost three thousand videos on YouTube that he's giving away for free, um, but I think that it's I think that it's a lot more complicated, and I think that actual t again you know think teaching and learning is a lot more complicated than just taking a video or taking a lecture and then putting it on, on YouTube. Um, I'm, I'm less impressed. I'm actually less impressed with what Khan Academy does than, um, than the buzz about him being sort of the savior of math. Well, it's so funny. My daughter's standing here next to me as we're doing this and I say the words Khan Academy and she says, Oh, I love Khan Academy. So there's something going on there. For me, though, again, you do this sort of this sort of wry quote at the end, <laughs> right? Where the irony dripping with irony, you know. Uh, you know, his team now has five million dollars to take the lecture homework exam model into the high. Um, I, the thought that occurred to me was that there's a big difference between knowing how to order a pizza correctly and making one. Yeah. And okay, so this is sort of content delivery, thirty minutes or less. It is content delivery, and I think that, I mean, and I'll, you know, this is a story that I like to tell. I mean, when I, I got my bachelor's degree uh, 15, 16, a long time ago, many years ago, and I actually took several of my classes through what was then called distance learning or even traditional sort of correspondence courses, and one of them was a statistics class that was video. So I got a box with 24 videos, video lectures of Statistics 101. And I could watch the videos and I could rewind the videos and rewind and replay and rewind and replay and rewind and replay. But if I didn't understand linear regression, it didn't matter how many times I replayed the lecture. Like, it, it still didn't make any sense to me. So I, I'm just skeptical of having of the magic of a videotaped lecture that you can replay as being sort of anything new or necessarily anything that helpful to, to a struggling student. I'm going to argue the case that that having that content available outside of the class means you don't have to use class time for it. Mm -hmm. So in the best of circumstances, that means that you can be doing discussion, 
problem solving and other things in the class that would normally you would not normally have the time for. But I'm wondering about the reality of that. Well, I mean, and I, you know, I have to want, I mean, it seems like the, you often hear of the sort of Khan Academy will replace lectures. Um, and if that's the case, if you're letting Khan Academy be the lecture, then I suppose you're right that that is, that is freeing up time in the class for more individualized instruction and remediation. But if Khan Academy is just replacing the textbook, the assigned reading, which is just sort of a, a, a lecture written down, then I'm not sure that it, that necessarily means that the classroom time is going to be spent doing anything different. I, I just am not. Sh- I'm just not sure that that, that that that's actually what's happening. So I have another deeper problem with this, and I'm really curious as to your response to it. It feels to me that that sort of uniquely, we in in the United States and maybe in in certain Western philosophies of education that we recognize participation as an active part of learning. And I'm thinking about this from the standpoint of the educators. I mean, the creation of uh, how you present content has to be a significant part of the growth and fulfillment of teaching. Mm-hmm. And I've worried that the sense that there are perfect or better lectures out there really puts the teachers, the educators, in a position where there's there, it's minimizing their ability to com- to communicate ideas of value to students. That's that's actually really interesting, and that um, and hearing you say that makes you know some of the statements I've heard from Saul Khan about sort of teachers don't scale, and we it doesn't really matter that we don't have good teachers because you just need sort of twenty good teachers making video <laughs> lectures. I mean that makes it even more frightening, and I think you're right. I think that there is something in the process of developing you know developing your uh, developing a lesson plan, presenting it to a class, having things go you know. Uh, either be brilliantly successful or sort of mm, go sort of moderately well or be disasters. I think that that's a huge learning experience for an instructor um, too. And and I think you could be right. I mean, thinking about handing over, um, but I don't know. We hand over we hand over the textbook. I mean, we hand over the textbook to other entities as well. Well, I, so maybe the connection here would be: Can you even imagine teachers in Finland actively using Khan Academy? And and again, I'm not an expert on Finland and have only seen the documentaries that I've seen, but it feels as though the role of the teacher has to be so much richer than that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that the, you know, I, there are several teachers that I um, that I sort of watch on Twitter who are doing really interesting things, and I would say really interesting things with video as well that is still quite different than what uh, than what Khan Academy does. Sort of video experimentation and thinking through thinking through putting material, use, you know, taking advantage of video, um, but not just using it to sort of recreate, recreate the lecture and or recreate the textbook in this, you know, in this, in this way. Well, I'm sure we'll keep talking about that. Well, I mean, one thing I'd like to add that I think is really interesting with this $5 million that, uh, that Khan Academy just got is that they're actually looking to build a school. Um, and that's, that's interesting to me because for a long time the sort of the story has been, um, you know, we can have video, you know, it was about sort of ha- putting content online that other schools can use. And so I'm really interested to see now that, that Khan Academy actually plans to build its own physical school and what that's going to mean. 
Well, I, that would actually that will actually be very fun to watch mm-hmm. because it, for those of us who believe that education is largely about building a compelling culture uh, and and doing it at a very local level, um, if they succeed in doing something like that, it would I, that would be lovely. Right. Although it doesn't seem like that's a natural transition. I'm struck by the degree to which we so often see education as an outcome rather than a process. Mm-hmm. And so if education is a process, removing that process from the teachers almost feels like cutting the heart out, right? And in the same way that democracy is about participation and, and we, we recognize that every city and every county and every state is probably having a lot of the same discussions. But it's really important to have that discussion locally because you're involved in the process. So yes, you could, you could systematize that or create videos to to cover all of the topics that would come up in town council meetings, but it's actually the act of meeting and going through that that's so valuable. See, and this is where we're sort of we're sort of touching on these themes that we've t- talked about with almost all of these stories, which is sort of thinking about education as merely a content delivery system, thinking about education when you when you put it online, that content del- delivery system can be you can get data, right? Data and algorithms that can predict, uh, you know, predict the next best lesson to deliver to students. Um, I think that it's it's definitely a direction that some, you know, some aspects of the of the industry are going that are not are fundamentally not about the process, not about the process of teaching, not about the process of learning, but they are about the product, the data, the content. I'd love to drill down on situations where data has been opened up and then used in very entrepreneurial ways, like the mining company in Canada that was floundering and they decided to open up all of their data and then held a contest and anybody could look at the data and predict where there would be gold to be found. And sort of the incredible entrepreneurial, passionate interest that was developed and the huge success. And so maybe the difference between opening up data that allows people to actively engage with that the ways they want to versus creating data that you prescribe how you're going to look at it or create um, expectations for what you're going to measure. Mm-hmm. That's going to be interesting to follow. Yeah, I know that the, you know, the Department of Ed is doing a pretty good job about um, opening up some of its data. They um, and I think that other um, other organizations are starting to as well. But I think that there also needs to be sort of thinking through what you know. What do we want to get out of you know what What are we looking for with this data, and who's doing the looking? Because um, it's right. not it's not it's not necessarily clear that just sort of opening the data is necessarily resulting in any problems being any new problems being sort of addressed. You're you're so right there, like with the LA Times and um, looking at the data on teachers in Los Angeles, and and the ability that for somebody with a certain amount of visibility to actually interpret that data a certain way that may or may not be accurate, but have it then become the main narrative. Right, right. Fascinating. Okay, so into your roundup. Yes. Uh, as usual, Dana Boyd and John Palfrey uh, teach us something uh, that we already know, but do it in such a very nice way that it's very helpful. Um, I don't know Esther and Jason, but this research paper on COPPA, yeah. fascinating. This is really fascinating. I think that this is another sort of demonstration about some of the ways in which our laws, the laws that we're using to sort of, quote, protect children, seem woefully outdated when it comes to the sort of realities of our digital world. And so, you know, the, the research paper looks at why parents will <laughs> willfully, willingly 
lie, help their children lie about their ages in order to bypass COPPA restrictions. Um, the Children Online Protection, Privacy, Privacy, Privacy and Protection, Protection Act. Yeah. And so, you know, and that act says that if, if you are, um, you know, you have to, it has sort of parental controls. Um, it's ostensibly meant to stop companies from selling uh, the personal data of, of kids. Um, and, but it's clear, I mean, it's clear that, that we're all sort of, I mean, we're all really helping our kids. We're helping our kids bypass these laws. The laws aren't working. Um, and, and not just that, you make the, 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 find, the report makes the argument and you call it out that, uh, that it could actually be making things worse. Well, right. I mean, that's the thing. If we, if instead of, you know, if, if it's just children's or children under 13, whose, whose personal data is supposed to be protected. If you, if you lie about your kid's age in order to let them on Facebook or give them Gmail accounts, um, then, you know, then, the, then their privacy isn't being protected. Um, but then again, we could ask, perhaps all of us should have better protections, uh, for our privacy, not just children. Um, but yeah, lots of interesting issues here, especially now that I think the the government is starting to look at revising some of these rules and changing them in ways that aren't necessarily um, that aren't necessarily don't necessarily fit with the actual practices of of parents. There are a lot of cultural negotiations that have to take place here, so it's hard to find fault with things moving slowly because they're complex issues. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I wake up thinking, gosh, I just wish we could wave a magic wand and tomorrow solve some of these. At the same time, though, it, it does seem to be a lot of value in thinking through these things together as a society. Yeah. The, 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 the funny thing when you think of the, the pace at some of these, though, is I always like to remember that the same year that COPPA was passed, um, you know, governing the, the world of those under 13 on the Internet, that was the year that Mark Zuckerberg turned 13. And so it's just funny to think about, you know, the person now who I think is sort of, in some ways, sort of the, the poster or the lightning rod around some of these discussions about privacy online was 13, the year that COPPA was passed, I think 1998 wow. or so. And we're going to get to Zuckerberg in a second. <laughs> okay, so the Supreme Court refuses to hear this case where a... Um, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals had upheld a uh, ruling that the school officials did not violate the stu- a student's First Amendment rights by disciplining her for conduct that took place outside of school, but online and related to school. Is there nuance to this story that I'm missing, or is it really as um, nonsensical as it seems? I think it's. I mean, I think that it's fairly nonsensical. <laughs> I mean, I think, that, you know, so the student student posted comments, um, folder comments about a teacher on uh, on Facebook and on web forums and was disciplined at school, even though she, you know, she hadn't used school computers to make the comments. She hadn't, um, they weren't on school websites, but she still was in trouble. And, and sort of, I mean, I think that any, you know, students' First Amendment rights are always, um, I'm not sure students have a lot of First Amendment rights in general, um, but the, here's another example of thinking about the ways in which online conduct uh, is now, um, you know, students are finding themselves with, you know, uh, their their rights sort of restricted o- online as well. I, I'm not saying the behavior was appropriate, but it, it was a fascinating thing to think that that we were willing to 
that we're willing to look at this kind of an issue, uh, especially in light of the fact that, that some will argue that schools are probably the most undemocratic places in a democratic <laughs> society. Yeah. And 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 if we look and if we look at the Occupy movement right now, and we look at the Tea Party. What's really interesting to me is. Uh, we are going to require some really thoughtful civil dialogue to get through some of these issues. But we're going to require it of a populace who have not spent much time actually being involved in civil dialogue. Right. It's a huge argument for democratic schooling. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's, I think that this is, you know, some of the, you know, some of the battles that we really have to think through here is what does it, you know, what does it mean to sort of restrict uh to have these sort of restrictions on on students, both while they're at school and then you know w- while they're at home uh, online, um, because as sort of as the polis as politics moves uh, both on and offline, I think it's imperative that we help help them be, you know, think through what it means to be, uh, you know, think through what it means to be a citizen and an active citizen, participating not just in sort of voting, but in all of these sorts of discussions. Right. Well, and is it is it legal to stay in a public park after a certain time at night? I mean, you know, or or should you be arrested? It felt to me like I mean, it feels to me like we are going to have to grapple with some pretty deep issues here about what we really think democracy is. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Kindle Lending Library. Oh, I was so excited. I heard about this. <laughs> it's gonna be. It's. I mean, one it, uh, one book a month out of five thousand titles. Da, 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 da. I'm a Prime member. I I buy Kindle books all the time. But guess what? I don't own an actual Kindle device. Same here. But I I'm experiencing the same uh, the same thing. Although I I will admit I have pre-ordered my Kindle Fire. Ah, you did. <laughs> I almost have. But you know, I actually kind of I I ordered it and then I canceled the order. Because it it just went a little bit beyond the line for me. One was the promotion of this cloud browser concept as yes. being uniquely theirs, when in fact many other browsers have done that for a long time. And the second part of it was the kind of lock-in that stopped me from being a big Apple fan. Right. I, yeah. Well, I will say that that, that my, my plans for the Kindle, I mean, unless it absolutely is like sort of to borrow uh, borrow Steve Jobs' phrase, unless it is absolutely a magical device, my plan is just to test drive it and probably <laughs> sell it on eBay a week or two. Oh, good. Later. Selling on eBay. Was, if you had said you were going to send it back, I was saying, you no. want to say that out loud? <laughs> no, no. Sell it on eBay. But uh, but I but I am I am curious to sort of see um, Amazon uh, sort of you know the stake in the ground in terms of thinking can we can we see a, a real rival to the iPad? Um, but but in terms of this Kindle the the lending library, I think that this is this has really actually been a fascinating uh, development because it, I think people have been excited about having a Netflix for books. Um, not only are none of the big six publishers participating, but Apparently, Amazon is also engaged in some really interesting um, financing of this, so that they're actually paying the paying the publishers uh, as though the book had been sold when people are buying it, or excuse me, it? when borrowing it. Yeah. So I don't know how sustainable how sustainable this version of the lending library will be. There's there's already been some questioning of the of the finances of this project as a whole. Right. Right. I mean, just the whole idea of are they actually going to be making enough money? But what's really interesting is in the same way that Steve Jobs is sort of the master of design, it feels like Jeff Bezos is sort of the master of 
um, figuring out a market. <laughs> the platform. He is the master of the platform. There you go. And, and so, uh, you know, Amazon ends up getting questioned almost every year on some aspect of their business. And they end up still kind of reshaping our expectations for what happens with an online retailer. Yeah. So it uh, it one and the same time I am kind of curious that he you know that he gets sort of the same bad rap that Jobs does about how he manages things and you know lots of criticism, um, but ends up sort of pulling off these kind of masterpieces of shifts in thinking. Yeah. No. I. I. And I think that I think that that's one of the really interesting and I think two sort of. Uh, sort of frightening ways of thinking about both of the both the iPad and the Kindle Fire as being the sort of new form of retail lock-in for our, you know, for our digital content. Yes, and like we've talked about in in sort of the non-open software oper- uh, offerings, sort of how compellingly um, valuable they are and how easy it is to walk into that without being able to look at the long term. Yeah, I mean, and and I think too, as you know, as schools are thinking through their strategy of, um, you know, putting particularly putting tablets in the classroom, adopting you know, adopting these devices. What are the implications? What are the implications for schools um, when they make these when they make these decisions right. in terms of hardware, software, the digital content that 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 those that those companies you know give you access to. So whereas the Kindle Fire may not have nearly the kind of visual quality that makes it so attractive to bring into the classroom, it potentially could uh, really have a strategic advantage in terms of the book content. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, we've talked before about World Reader and, you know, just the importance of having a, you know, that sort of, the importance of having ebook content on, on a portable uh, device is huge. But again, if if the big six publishers aren't on board with this lending library, I just, I mean, how 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 hard is Amazon going to have to push to get the publishing industry on board in general with this move to digital? I think that it's still right. sort of a battle a battle that Amazon, you know, neither Amazon or Apple sort of are uh, are winning. But partially because the right. publishing industry is just sort of wringing its hands about what to do. What to do about ebooks. And Google is clearly in this fight as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. So Larry Sanger introduces Reading Bear. And um, I thought of your story about television watching and children. (laughs) And I'm wondering how much that we are really trying to make learning less about, um, you know, actual human interaction. And, you know, does a program like this actually, is this newsworthy? Well, it, it, I just gave it, uh, I gave it two sentences. So no, not really. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that, but that's the other thing that this is indi- an indicative of is the amount of money and interest that's going on right now in Silicon Valley and sort of Silicon Valley, the industry, not necessarily the geography in the education, in the education space. I think we are seeing so many people sort of um, start, start, learning, uh, learning, start education companies that I think it's, that is something to watch. I really liked, uh, the book redirect. Um, and I'm blanking on the author's name, but I just interviewed him for the future of education, Tim Wilson. And, uh, you know, he talked about social programs and, uh, we're going to, you know, we're going to look at the abuse apps in a second, but really sort of testing what works and what doesn't. 
and how clearly sort of significant human-to-human contact with parents early on who are struggling with their kids makes such a difference, much more of a difference than any kind of technology would. You almost want to make the case here or, or stand up somewhere and shout, you know, please take some of this money and actually look at how you would help support a family because that interaction between the parent and child in terms of learning verbal skills seems to be so clear. We know that. It's the looking in the eye and responding and, you know, cooing back and all of the cues that help to teach language. And then I, you know, I read that piece and I thought, you know, I'm, I, I, another computer program? Yeah, well, doesn't do anything for me. And the, you know, I mean, I think what we were just talking about earlier with thinking about the the teaching process as well is I think that we are so excited about the potential for some of these technologies to change uh, teaching and learning that the actual teaching learning gets lost in our infatuation with the shiny, the shiny new hardware and the latest, the latest applications. Okay, so the Department of Health and Human Services announces winners of a challenge to build apps to prevent sexual assault. Um, I, I couldn't find as much detail as I wanted here, but it felt to me as though these two apps were kind of sort of in, in interesting solutions. And do you think they're going to work? The, I've been fascinated by the the challenge the challenge.gov program in general. Sort of talking earlier, you mentioned opening up data. This is this other piece in which the the government is making data available and then also encouraging third party developers to build, you know, to actually build. Uh, build sort of socially useful applications. And so the Department of Health and Human Services wanted to target, target the fact that, you know, sexual assault on campus is, is rampant. And the two apps that they built were both, both um, aimed at helping college-age students notify their circle of friends sort of where they were going um, just and have a quick and easy way to get help if you find yourself in a um, in a bad situation. And that bad situation can be sort of walking home from the library after dark, or it can be sort of a, a date that goes wrong, or, or sort of anything in between. And they both, they both again, rely on this connecting, connecting the social piece um, and enhancing the social, the social relationship piece, which is something we should be talking about technology, you know. We should be talking about how technology can enhance our social relationships, I think. I actually thought these were sort of brilliant ways of addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, the one laptop per child uh, program, stealth <laughs> dropping uh, computers into villages. Is this a metaphor for a lot of our ed tech uh, interactions right now? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think the um, some of Sudhatra Mitra's um, sort of work on leaving a, taking a computer to a village in India and leaving it there and seeing the kids sort of figure it out on their own, I think that they're, you know, figuring it out on your own is a compelling and profoundly important learning experience. That being said, I, it does seem a little odd to me that we would have a, the gods, you know, the gods must be crazy sort of moment where computers fall out of the sky um, in, in the developing world. I mean, it does seem as though we have a little, a little bit more responsibility um, <laughs> than just sort of parachuting in. Yeah. I really want to believe in the Sugata Mitra village stories. I can't. I haven't been able to get them on the show yet, but I, in part because I, I really, I, I really want it to be true. But I also want to ask some hard questions. Yeah. You know, is this really real, and what are what are the implications for this? Um, do you want to give a shout out for your new blog? Oh yeah, I've actually um, just this past week started writing over on Inside Higher Ed 
and they let me keep the hack education sort of branding. So it's yes. hack the hack, hack higher education. So, <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Okay. I know we're so tight <laughs> Okay. Google's reader face left. You know, of course, I'm like, oh, well, it still works great on my tablet. And then I saw, oh, I need to update my application. So then I ran the update. But actually, even after the update, the tablet functionality appears to be richer than the on-screen computer functionality in terms of sharing. Um, it didn't bother me, but I'm not that huge a Google Reader user. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's funny. I think I tweeted earlier this week that in its you know in its battle versus uh, versus Facebook for the control of social that that Google is taking a page from Facebook's book and changing the UI so frequently in all of its apps that everyone is sort of you know up in arms about you know the the new look and feel. Um, I think that the changes to Google Reader. Um, people seem very upset about it. Now that I've played with it a few days, eh, it's all right. I mean, I used the share function just mostly to share, you know, silly Star Wars stories with my little brother and boyfriend. So the fact that now I have to click to share to a special circle, I, I can live with that. There's been a facelift across most of the Google products that I use. Yes. And I sense this is part of the advice that uh, the Google founders have been given to sort of drop things that aren't working, sort of the, the Apple advice, right? Right. Drop the stuff that's not working, really focus on what is. I will tell you, I've, I haven't really loved the new look, and I'm actually very frustrated with the horizontal slider bar. Yeah. Um, enough that I'm noticing it several times a day that if the particular thing I'm looking at doesn't fill my screen and I have to try and slide over, I have a hard time doing so. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not that thrilled with the, with the new look and feel of the Google products either, and, and I... I but you know Google Google has never really and this is sort of if you think of the world of Apple versus the world of Google Google has never really got aesthetics. I don't think that they care about aesthetics the same way that that Apple does. And I, it seems now even profoundly more obvious as they're sort of refreshing the look and rolling out redesigns that are sort of uglier than uglier and starker than before. Well, yes. So we'll leave that. Um, <laughs> students' use of ebooks and not actually increasing. Is this because you can't take notes and you can't highlight? Is it because of portability? Why would students not be adopting ebooks more? I think that it's. I think that a, that a lot of the textbooks probably just aren't available on ebooks. I think that they. I mean, and I think that you know, despite all of the buzz about ebooks being easier or lighter, the bottom line is they're not cheaper. And students, I think, students buy their textbooks used. They sell their textbooks back at the end of the semester to try to recoup some of that money. And, you know, you would have to really love your introductory algebra textbook to spend $100 for an ebook version that you can't sell back right, at right. the end of the semester. Really good points. Okay, so Zuckerberg donates $100 million. Yes. And... Uh, where are we? What's going on there? Well, the this this donation was um, this donation was sort of uh, uh, timed when the Social Network movie came out, when um, Aaron Sorkin's movie made made Mark out to be a misanthrope, which I don't think he is. I mean, he's uh, he. I think Mark actually genuinely does love people and love social. And I think that he really did want to sort of do something good with his money. And he chose to 
to donate the he chose to donate the money to really to to Cory Booker. Um, when I when when Mark had his his press conference, you know he said he made it pretty clear that it was a that it was a gesture to support sort of the work the good work of Cory Booker, the the mayor of the mayor of Newark. And I think it's pretty indicative that the money is actually part of very political. Um, it seems to be going not so much to improve the Newark schools, but to sort of pay for consultants. And, and it's just another sort of, uh, it's just another sort of one of these stories, I think, of, of good intentions gone, gone bad. Yeah, I mean, it occurred to me two things, one of which is large sums like this always attract companies who make it their job to figure out how to receive those funds. Yeah. I mean, that's just sort of the sad truth about a lot of sort of what happens in government spending. Um, but the second piece was, I don't really feel like what we have in education is a money issue. I mean, it kind of, it brought me to this point of realization of saying more money thrown at some of these problems doesn't, to me, actually indicate we're going to succeed or solve them. It felt, you know, I've said this before, but it feels to me like we're in a Gandhi moment we need people who are going to help us redefine our narratives around teaching and learning. And I don't think that has anything to do with money. It has more to do with, you know, how do we go through the cultural change of shifting our perceptions? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I think that we're seeing that, you know, look at you look at all of the, the stories that we've talked about this week, the, that, the, that the amount of money that goes into, uh, goes into education is, is vast. Um, and the that having more money, you know, having more money for Khan Academy or more money for the Newark schools or more money for Newton or Pearson, um, none of these are sort of the none of these are sort of the silver bullet to quote fixing fixing education, wh- whatever whatever that might mean. So how did we take what was intended to be a twenty to thirty minute interview <laughs> or, or conversation? And we went up to an hour, an hour again. again. With our apologies, <laughs> we we sign off. If you want to complain, please do so. Send us either either of us an email, or that you actually like an hour, and we'll stick with an hour. But it was not our intention to keep you as long as we did. Audrey, thanks again so much for raising such thoughtful issues. Likewise, or Steve. being so thoughtful about the issues that you raise. This is great. I've really enjoyed this. So thanks for uh, the opportunity to to check in with you every week about it. It's been great. Thanks, Audrey. Have a great week, everybody. Bye, Bye now.